There we are. Steve just rebooted and now you're here. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Wendy, for getting us going here. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Lord, we love you and seek you, need you, and uh, just pray that you'll open our eyes and ears to the things that are right and true. Stuff I say that's not, we'll forget, but we want to know the truth about you and uh, this earth and religion, and we, we say this in Jesus' name, amen. So, listen, the past number of years, Derek uh, and Danita have been handling our books, and uh, when financial supporters have had credit cards and they expire um, or are closed for some reason, whatever it is, Derek has taken the time to call people and ask them what, how they want to proceed. And uh, I have recently agreed to take over this uh, part of receiving these rejections of cards that are being, we're not talking about a lot of money here, but it's just something that happens with ministry. And uh, so I'm not nearly as dutiful as Derek. Uh, in fact, we don't point out the way to donate to the ministry. Uh, people ask me, why don't you take some time to point out how uh, very often? And it's because if people want to support the ministry, they know how to support the ministry. I mean, bottom line, you know, I really don't like when people come out, how do I donate to the ministry? Well, you know, you, you, we all know how you do it. If anyone, if you really want to give ministry funds, you know how to do it, right? So I'm addressing this now because uh, I'm getting these notices of cards that expire or cancel for different reasons, and I'm not going to call you. <laughs> you're, pro you're probably supporters of ours, and because you're supporters, you watch. So this is my way of telling you. I'm not going to call you and say, hey, your card expired. Do you want to re-up with us? You know if you want to support or if you can or can't or don't want to. If you want to re-up, all that stuff. I realize, you know, we could go a few months and you won't realize it, all that stuff. Derek was so good at doing that, but I'm not going to be good at it. I'm going to trust that, that it will work out the way it's supposed to work out and we'll go from there. Uh, having said that, uh, and kind of ironically... With the TVAR, the Transversional Apostolic Record that we're working on, we would love to have your support. Prayers, financial. I don't know uh, if you know about it, the TVAR, but beginning October 30th of this year, if you go back to that show, there's four videos that explain what we're doing. We're, we're creating a new New Testament, so to speak. And uh, so uh, we're running through the shortest gospel, Mark, and should be ready by the first of the year, our first run. And anybody who has supported the ministry over the years in any way, you know, who are still involved with us, you're going to get a copy of that. And you can see for yourself what you think of it and if you want to continue to support us in that effort. I think you're going to be impressed with what it looks like. It's just our first run through, but it shows how the layout will look, the colorization and everything else. And so the people who come to campus and who are involved in HOTM, uh, we want to keep you involved in the process and in the progress of the TVAR. Uh, your support's really important, so just remember that. Uh, when talking about um, other ministries, I just thought it would be a good time for me to mention a few relative to the world of Mormonism that I think are good out there. Um, there's Ex-Mormon Files, that's with Bishop Earl, and of course there's uh, uh, IRR, with, IRR with Rob Bowman. Uh, I don't agree with his ideas on the Trinity, but, you know, and I know MRM.org. I don't agree with Bill McKeever's Calvinism. But nevertheless, these sites are good relative to Mormonism. Uh, UTLM.org, of course. WhatLoveIsThis.tv. That's Doris Hansen, Polygamy. And AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Plenty of stuff for people who are looking for information on Mormonism. But one that I really love and fully support and stand behind is uh, this ministry that call themselves talking to Mormons. And we've been showing you clips of it, but we want you to check it out and uh, consider looking into this website and see what it's all about. I've noticed that most groups that are considered cults teach that there was an apostasy of the Christian church, causing that true church to disappear from the face of the earth. Those groups also teach that the Bible had been tainted and corrupted by men. We don't consider our church a cult, but we believe in a great apostasy. Let's see what Jesus has to say about that. Will you please read Matthew 16, 18? Sure. 
And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is teaching that hell, or Hades, cannot stand against the growth of the church. Yet that is what the claim of an apostasy suggests. We believe it is saying that the church ultimately won't be overcome by Hades, because there will be a restoration of the church centuries later. But Jesus here is speaking offensively, not defensively. Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the growth of the church. Admittedly, Scripture does say things would become worse and worse before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus would never allow for the church as a whole that he is building, that he died for, to be overcome by Satan. We believe the apostles were killed, and there was no one with authority capable of preserving You see, it wasn't up to man to preserve the church. Men weren't in charge of Jesus was in charge, and Jesus is fully capable of preserving his church. There is an abundance of scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, that says God's word will not fail. He will preserve it. A beautiful promise made by the Lord himself is in Matthew 24:35. If you will, please read it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall never pass away. There was never a point in time when the gospel was not available to men. And there never was a time when the scripture was tainted to the point where plain and precious truths were removed from them. If that did happen, what would that make Jesus? A false prophet? Those inspired writers of the Bible went through painstaking labor to bring us the written word. Take, for example, Dr. Luke, who thoroughly researched eyewitness accounts when writing his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. Please read Luke 1, 1 through 3. Forasmuch as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seems good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. As the restored church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our message is that, after establishing his church, God allowed it to fall into complete apostasy for many centuries. Then you would have to ignore another statement Jesus made that's found in Luke 16, 16 through 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. I want you to read how much God values his word. Read Psalm 138.2. I have reverenced my word, even above my name. Do you think God would allow his word to be changed or corrupted for 1,500 years until a 14-year-old boy came along who would restore it back to earth and do it, no less, through another book Joseph Smith called Scripture? Keep watching and share Talking to Mormons with your friends. So there you go, Talking to Mormons. It's really a great app, full of great content. And uh, those graphics are, those illustrations are looking wonderful, by the way, Brother Seth. Really good. So uh, the thing is, what's heartbreaking to me is so many people are leaving Mormonism now. Uh, it's really, really uh, having an exodus, even though they deny it. Uh, but they're walking into atheism. It's, it's almost like the, the natural outflow. Uh, but, you know, look around. What's out there for them? Uh, often not a free, loving, unencumbered relationship with, with the Lord, but instead more religious rhetoric. Uh, some of it as un unsubstantiated as the Book of Mormon stuff. Uh, more rules, some as heavy as the LDS put on their people. More demands, often for more, more, more money, attendance, participation. And uh, more general allegiance to our church, play play with us, our church only. So it may work for the elderly, you know, uh, but this stuff's not going to play with our youth. And that's where my eyes are on the youth. In fact, recently, uh, a couple of you have forwarded me a recent article that has been bouncing around in some way or another for the last five years that I can remember. And the point blank statement of the article is studies and statistics are showing that Christian churches are hemorrhaging youth. Um, they are bleeding out of young people. And if youth are engaged with religion, it is often for the wrong reasons, and it's for reasons that often don't keep them in it. 
So we've been talking about this and we're beginning to see it actually manifest itself in our country and in our world. You see, the millennials and those before and after them are seeing religion, organized religion, kind of for what it is in many ways. An unauthorized game of policy and culture and demands and conformity uh, perpetrated by zealous rhetoric, often that can't be substantiated by reason. And I think God wants us to be reasonable when we read his scripture, when we follow him. He doesn't want us to be following him in a vacuum that doesn't have answers. He wants us to follow him with, with evidences. And uh, they see through the money and materialism and the shows and the self-indulgence. They see it. They see through authoritarianism. They see through pastors getting up and, 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 and doing their thing. They see through archaic thinking. Um, they see uh, baseless authoritarianism. They see activities that are ancillary to the faith in Jesus Christ, like politicking and protesting and, and stuff like that. They see the vulgar use of the Bible to malign uh, marginalized people in this day and age. They don't put up with it. And they see, uh, they see how the poor and the outcasts are treated often in the more powerful churches. They, they look through that stuff. These guys are pretty smart. So we have really enjoyed the way the internet has decimated uh, Mormonism. We have, as a Christian faith, we just love seeing how their leaders have had to change things and make announcements and how they're getting outed all over the place for some of their uh, games. And we have rejoiced fully that finally our good LDS neighbors are coming to see the truth and are walking away from Mormonism. We're so happy that they understand the lies they've been fed about their doctrines and their practices. But most of us have utterly failed to see that same access online to information, uh, it has put all of organized faith in jeopardy. And we are quickly approaching the day when the old ways of teaching children about God through dogmas about hell, eternal punishment, uh, dogmas about God uh, electing most people to go there, dogmas about the second coming, uh, be fearful, watch for it, get ready, stockpile food, you know, uh, keep your cell phone charged, don't receive the mark of the beast, watch out for your credit card numbers. Uh, incomprehensible man-made trinity and the need to go to church or God will be mad at you. This stuff is fading fast. And we've, we've done shows on all the other reasons we're going to have trouble as organizations keeping this model of organized religion together. Add in the sway of the world and uh, they clearly, the world clearly petitions for a life of pleasure and, uh, and self-will and godlessness and the pr promotion of uber-humanism. And if we don't make changes now, we are playing a role in the overall spiritual demise of uh, our human race, I think. One which many people are anxiously awaiting. And you know, we think the, 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 the faith can never leave this earth. No, God would not allow that to happen. His church will continue on and on and on. And it may continue on eternally just through spirit members that are already there. Because I don't know, relative to my stance on what the Bible says, I don't know that, that the church is destined to forever be on this earth. I'm not sure about that. I could be wrong, but I'm not sure about it. So to sit back, fat, dumb, and happy and say, you know, God will never let it leave. Let's just keep doing our shenanigans and think we are always going to be strong and around. I think you can see if you look at Europe, that's not the case. And I think if you look uh, here in the U.S., we're starting to see a fallout. So instead of letting go of traditions, though, and letting go of dogma and inviting people into the light of God and his unconditional love and his victory over all things, the powers that be are clinging to former traditions, not realizing, to quote George Bernard Shaw, that those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And if we don't change our minds, what we're seeing today in these articles is just going to snowball out into the world. Of course, those who resist change don't want to change, do they? They have found what works for them, and therefore they selfishly promote whatever serves them and their needs at the moment. I'm happy, don't rock the boat kind of mentality. So I'm not about destruction for destruction's sake, but I am all for tearing down elaborate systems that if, if they're going to ultimately fail us, especially our youth and the generations that are coming. So in the face of organized religions from the wide spectrum of them, 
uh, from the orthodox, and we're going to talk about that tonight, uh, to the most liberal side, the most innovative churches. I have yet to see uh, them prove themselves and being impervious to manipulation. I have yet to see an institution that's impervious to manipulating people. I've yet to see them willing to actually liberate their uh, members, really liberate them in Christ. Uh, I have yet to see them fully embrace their people as, as pushing them to be free from the strictures of religion. All I've seen is those institutions draw them into less uh, religious freedom. And um, I have yet to see them sustain what the apostolic record states are facts um, without human intervention and without human tradition. So tonight we're going to take three broad approaches in a three-part series. And um, we're going to talk about them in this world today and about the failures that they represent. And they're broad categories. First, orthodoxy. And I'm going to tell you what's under that. Then Protestantism and what's under that. And then Restorationism. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of generalized churches under those four, three broad categories. So um, I want you to know that I don't need to be an expert in orthodoxy or Protestantism or Restorationism to be able to address these issues. And I'm coming to this table armed with three essential tools that will help me. And, um, and I'm just going to tell you what they are. I'm just going to say it straight out. The first tool is I have a pretty good contextual understanding of the Bible, especially the, what we call the New Testament. Um, I have a fairly good God-given from him ability to discern religious manipulation relative to the zeitgeist of the text, meaning the spirit of the text as a whole, kind of understand the spirit of it as a whole. And when I see the manipulations, I'm pretty well, pretty good at seeing what those are. And finally, and this is not brash, it is brash, but it's not um, without humility because it's God. I have zero fear of what people can do to me or uh, I don't fear change. I don't fear poverty. I don't fear losing popularity. I cannot be bought by anyone at any time ever. And I'll say that boldly. You can't buy me. I've been tested with it. And to me, it's fun to tell people to go away when they think that they can do that. So um, my allegiance is to God and his truth with a capital T. And I've gone this far in my old aging body. I'm going to go the rest of the way and become even more strong on that. So if this benefits you, praise God. If it frightens you, good. So coming to the table with these approaches, we're going to talk about um, orthodoxy, Protestantism, restorationism, and, um, and then the solution. I'm not just going to attack these things. I'm going to also provide what I see as a viable solution, and it's not new, and it's not created by me. Now, we've had a lot of guests over the past couple years, a lot, and they've all brought great things to the table, and I, I respect all of them, and I respect their different views, and I respect their right to have those views and see them as brothers and or sisters. So I'm not here attacking people individually. I will try to be fair, but I will do everything I can to persuade you to see that the three main groups are done for and they aren't representing the biblical narrative, especially the New Testament. And I keep making that. One more point of clarification. When I speak of orthodoxy, I'm going to be talking about institutions that appeal to church traditions in addition to the scripture. Okay? So these include Roman Catholicism, uh, Orthodoxy, all Eastern Orthodoxies, Russian, Greek, uh, the Lutherans, Orthodox Presbyterianism, and apparently Methodism, which I just learned that they're, they have segments that are part of that. I didn't know that. Uh, when I address Protestantism, 
I'll be speaking of all denominations that fall under the topic of this category. And there are a lot of them, but generally I'm going to be talking about the Baptists and the Presbyterians, the, the Methodists too, the Lutherans. You can see I'm, I'm doubling because they do kind of sit in both areas. And, um, and that's because Luther couldn't pull the trigger in the Reformation. Uh, he couldn't totally get out of Catholicism. So a lot of the vestiges of orthodoxy transfer over to Lutheranism, which is a Protestant religion. So there's going to be some, some stuff in there. And then when I speak of restoration churches, I'm going to be speaking of anything that has popped up where the leaders have said, we want to restore the truth back to the earth, or we want to do a better job of bringing the church around. I refuse to put myself in the idea of a restorationist because not trying to restore Jack, in fact, trying to destroy the, the stuff that we think we're restoring. That's a different subject. Restorationists include the disciples of Christ. I'm going to be pretty liberal in that. The Shakers, the Mormons, of course, uh, the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Amish, even Christian scientists, Meth, um, uh, Mennonites, any of those I'm going to include, Christadelphians, they don't completely fit under the thing of restorationists, but they sort of do because they've come and said, we've got a better way. It isn't Protestant. It isn't Orthodoxy. It's getting back to the roots of the true church. So um, I won't be addressing individual churches too much, just talking about the groups, groups in general. So let's begin with some assumptions that have been passed along through different channels and treated as facts. Treated as facts by each three group, but they really aren't facts at all. They've just been propagated as facts. And tonight we're going to cover one area of these three groups and talk about how they are fails and why, in the end, that isn't necessary. And tonight we're going to talk about authority and especially apostolic succession. Now, we're going to, any church, if they kind of go with any church model, no matter the category, they act as if they have authority. The pastor actually acts as if he represents God like Paul or Peter did as an apostle. All right, so we're going to talk about this idea in orthodoxy, Protestantism, and restorationism when it comes to authority. And by the way, when it comes to orthodoxy, I should be looking like this. And do you notice something interesting about this look? Is that if people meet you and you look like this, if I had my collar buttoned up and my shirt wasn't torn, or if this was kind of an embroidered robe, you're automatically considered like you know something in religious circles. <laughs> I mean, if I sat like this and people came by and said, what do you do? And I said with an accent, I'm Greek Orthodox. I speak the truth of God. People are like, oh, tell me, great one. You see, clothing, we're going to talk about that gets into it, doesn't it? You know, and so uh, remember that idea of clothing as we go on. But in Orthodoxy, the claim of the Catholics and, the, and all though is that Jesus established a church through his apostles and those guys gave their apostolic priesthood and power to other men who carried it forward. And they love getting on YouTube and on TV and saying, we can trace our authority all the way back to Peter or Jesus. They love doing it. The Catholics do it. The Greeks, uh, the Orthodox truly do it. In other words, just because John apparently elected some men to be leaders in the church, or because Jesus told Peter that he would uh, give him the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, does not mean there is a succession of apostolic authority. That is a giant chasm as wide as uh, the Grand Canyon. I mean, it is huge to make that leap, right? Now, one reason this is true is because of the qualifications for the apostles themselves that the Word of God lays out for us. Where do we get them from? You remember that Peter... He got together and he says, we need to call another apostle. It's the only time they replaced an apostle of one of the 12. And he says, we, and, and, and we need to find somebody. And these are the qualifications that we find through the New Testament, uh, the apostolic record. They've been with Jesus 
in the ministry. In other words, they know what he has been about from the start. They've been called by him. They've been trained by him directly. They went out and openly, in danger of their own well-being, openly preached his resurrection, and most of them suffered martyrdom except for John. Okay? When Peter called Matthias through casting lots, he hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. It was an act of just doing something because he didn't know what else to do. Matthias replaced Judas. It's the only time in the whole apostolic record we have the apostles replacing an apostle with those qualifications. What happens when we read that James was killed by Herod in Jerusalem? Do we read in the apostolic record that they got together and they called another one? No, we do not. Why? Because it was never to be the case. Those apostles, we have Jesus, we have him call his 12, and these, this represents 12, and they start dying off. They're dying off toward the end of that age to where we're left with John at the end. One guy gives us revelation, right? So that was the plan. It was never the plan that these 12, Jesus, these 12, would call one every time. And that's the idea orthodoxy tries to give you. We get our authority all the way back to the original apostles. There's a gap in that that can't be proven. Additionally, we do not have any sort of, of this passing on going on until several hundred years, and it records it backward. It's Eusebius in 300-something who backwardly goes, and he just makes this vague reference about Polycarp knowing John, and they tie all that together, and they give themselves this line of authority. Also, it also could have been recreated from nothing. We don't know. That's the whole thing. They could actually have a list of names from Peter, James, John, or whoever, and they could say, look at the line, but we don't know. Religions will do anything to give themselves a certitude and authority. So just because orthodoxy claims that their pope came from Peter or that their apostolic succession came from the apostles does not mean that it happened. So anytime orthodoxy, people of orthodoxy start claiming we have apostolic authority, Say, I want you to give me some real proof, not just some, uh, 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 whatever you call those things, line of authority paper that they put up on the walls of your church to show you how, how you've got it. Okay? So, uh, the reason this is, is because there was never supposed to be an apostolic succession. The foundation of the faith was apostles and prophets. You pour a foundation once, and once it's there, you build upon it. You don't keep pouring foundations. It's not that it's built upon continuing prophets and apostles. It's built upon the prophets and apostles that were given in that age. And by the way, the record tells us who was called to be the 12th apostle to help lead the bride through those times. Uh, Jesus, he called Saul. That is the one Jesus called. Peter did his act of calling Matthias by casting lots, an Old Testament way of doing it before the Holy Spirit fell. But Jesus called the 12th apostle, and you can tell by the fruit of the 12th apostle Jesus called versus what Matthias did. So to make the claim that because the apostles had other men elected to leadership in the church has absolutely no value toward apostolic succession. Now, conversely, in the Protestant tradition, we have an even greater difficulty, and it's big, and which we're going to get to in a second. But before we do, Orthodoxy has loosely four people that I can think of and that I've been able to find out that they can loosely create an illusion of having apostolic authority. Clement of Rome, also called Pope Clement, by the way, Ignatius of Antioch, said to be a student of John the Beloved. Polycarp of Smyrna, born in 69 CE and died 155 CE. So you're talking about a lot of years. We're talking about 120 years since Christ with, with, with Polycarp. And uh, he is said to be an apostle of, of John, I mean, a disciple of John. And finally, Papias of Heriopolis, uh, 
and whose work is dated 95 to 120 CE. Those four are the guys that they, with conjecture and presupposition, say we get our authority from them, right? But those four, we don't have any real connection to the apostles except for Eusebius in 325 saying, yeah, uh, Polycarp knew John and therefore we can tie it right there. But there's only one reference, one in all of church history and they hinge it upon that and they use supposition to do it. But all of those guys were still in the hundred years uh, after uh, Christ's birth. Um, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Athanasius, he's the guy who started the first council of the Nicene Creed and started up with the Trinity. And the Cappadocian Fathers, they're the 300s. These guys were all second century on out to the four 500s, all of those guys. We're talking about a massive group of people with a ton of conjecture in the earlier years. And the closer you get to the real apostles, the more this thing just falls apart. And Tertullian and Jerome and Augustine and, and Pope Gregory the Great, all of them, 300, 400, 500, way, way beyond. So we can see that while there are a number of cooks in the patristic kitchen, uh, none of them play directly into succession, in, into the, the link between the 12 and what the Bible says, and then the orthodoxy's claim of having this direct succession. So remember the legend of apostolic successions exists on shakily on only four people and they don't have a real connection except through myth, in my opinion. So those are the problems with calling uh, orthodoxy as having the authority, not to mention the great schism of 1056 when the Catholics and the uh, Eastern Orthodoxy split. So they don't talk about that very much, do they? So who has the authority then? You got two popes who both excommunicated each other. You got the Catholics left and you got the, the, or, the Eastern Orthodox left and you have a split. Now that's like saying Peter, James, and John split from Andrew, Bartholomew, and the other guys. You, you can't have that in Christ's church. But there was a split. Of course, the Greeks and the Russians say, we were the ones who took it through. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, the uh, Catholics are, we have continued the torch forward. And it's just, it's just men. It's just playing church. So, ridiculous. So, uh, and it doesn't matter if you side with the, the Roman Catholics or with Orthodoxy. There was a schism and nobody on earth can say who's on the right side. All they do is argue and yell across the pew at each other. So that's all sectarian. However, the Protestants as a whole are in really bad shape because they have zero claim to authority at all. Um, this is entirely forgotten by the masses who follow a Protestant faith uh, and who generally assume that these men and women somehow have authority when they stand over their denominations and pass things down from the mouth of God to be in effect upon their congregates. Um, there is not a Protestant on earth that can rightfully show that they have the authority of Jesus Christ to do and say what they do. Not one. And let's be clear. The apostolic record, the New Testament, makes it very, very clear. I cannot deny this. It makes it clear that if there is to be a true church of Jesus Christ on the earth, it is to be governed by apostles, without question. There's no getting around that. Protestants like to say, well, we have the words of the apostles that help guide us today. Uh, and we're going to get to that point. Um, uh, uh, there's just so many reasons that you cannot use that as viable when you look at the evidence. So, for instance, the Bible wasn't available for several hundred years uh, after the death of the last apostle. And when did it actually become available and in language that people could read and understand? And when were literacy rates enough in the world that people could actually get a Bible and read it? So the Protestants come 1530 are going, we have the Bible that gives us our authority, right? But for 1500 years, that wasn't available to people. 
So then you have orthodoxy saying, that's why you need us in orthodoxy, because for 1,500 years before the Bible was available, we were here with our traditions to guide the church with apostolic succession, right? So in other words, the letters of the apostles is no substitute for living, breathing apostles because the letter kills. And we've seen that played out in Protestantism, where they get the Bible and they do nothing but split, 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 split on every single thing, right? And uh, this is because written words have proven to be so utterly up to interpretation. You need a living apostle in Christ's church to declare what he meant when he wrote that, to whom he wrote it, and when there are exceptions to the things that they wrote. You need the living apostles to be on earth if it's Christ's church on earth. Gotta have it, okay? So what Protestants lean on in reaction to this is their education. They say, well, well there's a lot of different opinions in the Bible, but we've got our PhDs and we've got our masters in divinity and we can sit there and we can tell you what the Bible actually means. And so when we read the Bible, we understand it better than the people sitting in the, in the pews. So we have authority through our degrees to interpret the Bible that they need to listen to. And that's where we get our authority. And this thinking brings us all the way back around to Jesus' day when learned men, Sadducees and Pharisees, thought because of their learning, they knew more than the Lord, who didn't have that, that learning. They knew more than the apostles. And so when the apostles go out, Jesus is ascended, and they're out sharing the truth. Those Pharisees and Sadducees did everything they could to kill Jesus' apostles because they were so learned, they knew the truth, and the apostles didn't. That's the same platform Protestants take. We, in our pews, we make sure our pastors are educated, educated, right? And they can teach the word properly. They all disagree with each other. So, bottom line, the Protestants play church without any authority or right or... And the fruit has amounted to each Protestant group creating their own empire. And the bigger, the better which inevitably lends us to a us versus them mentality, uh, sort of like that existed in the, in the Great Schism of 1056 with Orthodoxy and Catholicism. And so we can see right now, just in the short time together, what a clusterfuck this has been. I mean, you're talking about, like Chuck Smith used to say, church history stinks, and it does. And yet these morons, sorry, are out there trying to wave their flag and saying, we've got the right way, we've got the right way, and it doesn't work. Perhaps worst of all are what we're calling the restorationist churches. Because with startup flair and with brazenness, they ignore all need for apostolic authority that the scripture clearly teaches you got to have, uh, like the Protestants do. They just create their own. Or they claim an authority to have come from some place, uh, usually the spirit, their inspiration, or in the case of the Mormons, Joseph Smith was smart enough to see the fail in Protestantism, see the failure in Orthodoxy, though uh, through their supposed apostolic succession. And so he did what any genius religious organizer would do. He drew Peter, James, and John, and John the Baptist out of heaven, and he had him come down and give him the authority. That was smart. It was a lie, but it was smart. He circumnavigated all that church history sucky stuff, and he brought it right back and said, I've restored it. Disciples of Christ didn't even get there. I mean, with Alexander Campbell, and they are rigidly thinking that they have the truth, these disciples of Christ. Smith said, you don't have the truth because you don't have this authority, apostolic authority. We do. So what do the missionaries for the Mormon church do when they knock on doors? Does your church have 12 apostles? Well, ours does. Does any other church on the face of the earth have 12 apostles who have the authority of Jesus Christ, can trace it all the way back to Jesus Christ? We do. We do. We can show you right now how we get it. We have this, we go back to this, my stake president did that, to this, to the prophet this, to Joseph Smith, who got it from Peter, James, and John. <laughs> it's still, oh my gosh, right? Fortunately, his claims are total historical fabrications, as well as being in conflict with a lot of biblical uh, definitions of priesthood. So listen, this is really, really important, folks. 
When you read the apostolic record, there is a clear place for apostolic leadership in the Christian church that Jesus founded. Clear, mandated for his bride in that day. This cannot be denied. And a contextual reading of the Bible shows that Jesus was not kidding around when he called, trained these original 12 and then Paul. We see enormous evidence in their writings of their authority to do miracles, to preach the good news, and to set the affairs of the church bride in place so the gates of hell could not prevail against it. It was no joke to be messing around with. To suggest that Jesus would have a church on earth, meaning an institution that would remain impervious to corruption and vice in terms of doctrine and practice without specially appointed, inspired, spiritually gifted apostles to govern it is, is like believing that a shipping magnet will allow her ships to go to sea without a crew. That's, that's what it's akin to when you see how involved the apostles were in nurturing, guiding, warning, and protecting that church bride in that age. All you have to do is read the epistles and gospels and see what Jesus expected of those men. And let me tell you something. He expected them to perform. He was tough with them. And he gave them direct, and they knew it. And they responded that way uh, so much that they gave their, all, uh, their lives. So fundamental are his 12 apostles that Revelation says their names will be on the 12 pillars that establish the new Jerusalem. That's how important they were. It doesn't say a succession of apostles going through the 2,000 years of Christian history are going to be on those pillars. It says the 12 apostles' names will be on the pillars in heaven. That's how important they are. Not going to be those yokels up on North Temple who claim to be apostles from the Mormon church. It's not going to be any of these other Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox apostles. It's not going to be any of these popes from the Catholic church. So right off the bat, if you're serious about truth, and you understand that the need, purpose, and value of apostles to govern and guide Jesus' material church was purposeful and an absolute reality of what he established, you're ahead of the game. So anyone... We're left with a problem. Orthodoxy, realizing the import of living apostles and their guidance, gifts, leadership in Jesus' church have tried to create their own line without any substantive proof, either from the Bible that says this would be the case, because it doesn't, or evidence that this was the case when the apostles were killed off in the text. Needless to say, Protestantism and Restorationist movements have nothing to stand on except their myths. So we got to throw them out, in my estimation, and we got to look strictly at orthodoxy and what the claim is. So what's the solution in the face of these three major fails? Before we answer this, let me quickly mention the results that the leadership in these three groups, what they have with their either a direct line of apostolic succession, no authority at all, or restored authority, apparently, let's look at what those apostles have done with the bride of, of Christ that's waiting for his return to come and take it. First, let's look at orthodoxy. What has their false claim of apostolic authority done for them? Just ask yourselves, ask yourself, would Jesus genuinely call and train apostles that would allow what has flourished in orthodoxy over the years? Can you see Peter, if you know the word, or you see Paul or John, son of thunder, can you see them allowing what has gone on in orthodoxy writ large, allowing any of that to go on? When you really understand Paul, do you think that Peter and Paul would love a veneration of the saints? Do you think Paul would put up with being venerated? Or Peter? Uh, really think about it. Those of you who know your Bibles, what about inner apostolic politicking that goes on with orthodoxy? And let me tell you something. 
It is fugly. The, the, the hidden politics with Greek, Russian, or Roman Catholicism, and I'm sure in the other Orthodox uh, extensions of, of the uh, Church of England and, uh, and any of the others, the politicking is horrendous. It's ugly. And all you got to do is just go to someone who's in Greek Orthodox or any of the others and read about it, and you'll see from first-hand witnesses what it's like. So what would Jesus' apostles think about meeting in that modern apostles' uh, appearance and allowing them um, to do these things in the name of Jesus? Uh, as was mentioned last week with Brian, a guest we had, what about some of the, just the outfits that these guys wear? Could you imagine Peter, Andrew, James, John roaming around in gold-threaded, specially worn, pressed outfits with pointy hats? And, and, and long wizard-like sleeves as they stand and they do Holy Eucharist communions? Would the apostles ever allow that to go on in this apostolic succession? And then, you know, what about the candle lighting and the candle burning and the incense and the festivals and the fastings? for 30 days or whatever it is, or for the feastings and the holding of these holy traditions when Paul spoke clearly against special days, clearly against them. Could you see the apostles putting up with that? How about saving rites? I don't see anywhere in there that the apostles would put up with saving rites that the orthodoxy claims. How about icon uh, iconography? You go in there and they have these pictures that are everywhere and they actually look to them. How about Mariology? Praying to Mary because she's closer to God and, you know, you ask your friend to pray for you, you ask Mary to pray for you. Could you imagine Peter or Paul bringing that up? We don't see it anywhere in Scripture, but their apostolic succession has allowed for that stuff to creep in and they say that they are doing uh, God's church. It's baloney. And it's, you know what, it is, it's like the chiropractic of religion. They feel so much through their rituals and their robes and their, their festivals and the holiness that they feel from doing all that, that it survives. It feeds off that, right? What about the Catholic lines of authority? What have they allowed? I don't even have to go into it. I mean, I'm sorry. Major fails in light of what the apostles clearly describe in Scripture, major. And while there are justifications and rationalizations through the nose on why they have allowed these things to happen, no true apostle, if you think about it, would ever allow those things to happen. But when we look to the Protestants, we fail on the other end of the spectrum, where orthodoxy, with their apparent apostolic leadership, has introduced all sorts of rituals and rites and practices. The Protestants claiming Sola Scriptura as their apostolic authority, have got so much BS orbiting around the faith, you can't keep track of it. What I can keep track of is the fact that without real apostles guiding Protestantism, we've got abuse upon abuse upon abuse, justification upon justification, and all of it turned with a blind eye to each other. Unless you come out against something that is considered really, really, really important, like the Trinity. You know, you can do healings for people falsely. You can do all sorts of stuff in the name of the Protestant uh, uh, faith. And you can just be excused on that as, you know, they believe in the core essentials. But just don't question something that was created during this, uh, uh, this apostolic succession time, and, and you'll be all right. So, look at the materialism and the money -mongering, uh, mongering and the cheap grace and the legalisms and the shaming and the conform or be cast outism that's all over uh, Protestantism. Look and listen to the man's of total allegiance uh, to teaching and practice, justifications for all that. Worst of all, look at the lack of love. Look at what we're doing in the name of Jesus' church today, the lack of love, and uh, it's astounding. Uh, all, all done by people without any authority at all. And then we look to the Restorationists, we see the same thing, except in the presence of a much more cult-like control. They're much more occultic than the Protestants. And uh, because of their system inspired something that restored the true church back to the earth, there is typically more cult-like mentality that comes with them. Church of Christ, very cult-like. 
course, uh, Mormons, very cult-like. Seventh-day Adventists, cult-like. Jehovah's Witnesses, cult-like. Scientists, cult-like. Now, I'm not picking on the people in these religions. The people are seeking God. I'm picking on the institution. What is in place biblically that can confront all of these fails that we find support for in the world of Christianity through the Bible? What is in place? Is it just another form of Protestantism, Restorationism, or Orthodoxy? It's really simple. I didn't create it. It's hiding in plain sight within the pages of the apostolic record. Many Christians see it. Most are blind to it. Why hasn't it been seen and embraced? I have no idea. I really don't know. But when it comes to apostolic authority, here is the simplicity of the whole thing. And we'll wrap up the show with this. After 400 years of silence, called the intertestamentary period, the apostolic record opens up and it describes a man who is prophesied in the last book of the Tanakh named Malachi. And Malachi said, this guy's going to come forward and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. What were the very first recorded words of this chosen one, whose name is John the Baptist, when he entered Jerusalem, city of David, city of peace? What were the first recorded words we have of him? When he asked the Pharisees and Sadducees who had showed up at his baptism, he said, quote, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Those were his first words, prophesied in Malachi. Two verses later, he says, And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, what fire is he talking about? A lot of people say he's talking about the fire that's going to come at the end of the world. But the scripture tells you clearly it's a fire that was coming at the end of the age. It's a fire that destroyed Jerusalem, where John the Baptist was when he was saying this. It's a fire that came down and it destroyed them. That's the fire he was talking about. Those words were to them then. To them then. Yeshua was baptized. He called his 12 apostles, 12 of them. He trained them. Their job was to preach the good news that Jesus had come, to receive the good news, be saved from the wrath to come that John had talked about. All the prophets had prophesied of this wrath that was coming upon the nation. Before Jesus was killed, the night before he actually was taken, or the night of him actually be taken, he took Peter, James, John, and Andrew to Olivet Mountain. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And prior to going to Olivet Discourse, Jesus had said harsh words to the Pharisees. How are you going to escape Gehenna over there in the north part of Jerusalem, that burning pit where we, the fire never goes out? How are you going to escape that? And then as they're walking away from that, he says to the disciples, this temple... The, 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 the disciples said, this temple is beautiful. Look at it. He said, it's not going to remain standing. Not one stone will remain standing upon it. After that, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to him, and they ask Jesus on all of it, tell us, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And when will be the end of this age? Give us the answers to these three things. And Jesus lays out for them in Matthew 23 exactly the th signs they're to look for that would come upon them when Jerusalem will be wiped out and destroyed. Listen closely. Everything, we did two years studying Revelation. Everything that Jesus described happening as, as coming to the end of the age, when he was going to return, the, and, and when those things would happen, is described by secular historians, either Cassius Dio, Tacitus, Suetonius, or Josephus. Collectively, they cover, and in their secular, non-Christian reports of what history was, describe those events Jesus gave to those four apostles on the Mount of uh, Olives. They record it. They talk about angels in the sky. They talk about fire. They talk about birds from the east and from the west and all the stuff. They talk about all of it. Jesus also promised there that within a generation, 
that's a 40-year period in Bible, all of those things would happen. He said that probably around 30 AD, 40 years later was 70 AD. He was put to death, resurrected, ascended into the clouds with an angel promising the apostles, why do you stare up looking at Christ? He's going to return in the same manner that he left, in through the clouds. Josephus, Suetonius, Tacitus, Dio, Cassius, all of them comment on what the clouds' role was in the destruction of Jerusalem. In the apostles' writings, every apostle who wrote expected and assured their readers of their epistles that Jesus was coming back quickly, soon. The time was at hand. Do you know what people say uh, about those comments that those apostles made? They say today they were wrong. They believed it, but they were just wrong. If they were wrong about that, they were wrong about the whole deal. The whole deal. I wouldn't even read the Bible if they were wrong about that, but they weren't wrong. Jesus wasn't wrong. His signs were all dead on. His signs all happened. They happened when he said they would, and he returned within that generation as he promised. Guess what? They were correct, and he came back as promised with judgment upon those who didn't receive him and, and, and their world and with reward for those who believed. And those who believed were his bride. They were his church bride. They were, who the, they were what the gates of hell would not prevail against. And Jesus took that bride as promised and rescued her from the destruction and took her to the new Jerusalem on high, which is heavenly. Now, here's the thing. All of this is verifiable by scripture and secular history, but the record also has God describing for us what this world of faith would look like once those things happened. Okay? He tells us. And what he describes is not religion. It's not brick-and-mortar churches. It's not an apostolic authority. It's not a priesthood. It's not external rites and laws. To summarize, it is a day when nothing that can be shaken will remain, so the only thing that remains cannot be shaken. It's talking about a spiritual church, not a brick-and-mortar, not a physical priesthood. A day when God would write his laws upon the hearts and minds of those who were his. That is called a direct relationship with God for individuals. Not a church, not a brick and mortar that gathers people to do these things that the churches want them to. God calls his New Testament when he writes his laws upon the hearts and minds of individuals. And that might be you. In this age, he will reign, not man he will reign by his spirit. The church, the need for church, the need for apostles, authority, restoration, gone at 70 AD. So while what the Bible says about authority is correct, the Bible also tells us once Jesus comes and does what he does with his bride, there is no need for any of this anymore. So people will say as we wrap this up, well, did, what happened? What happened? I believe that Jesus came and took his bride and those who were left were not part of it. And therefore, those who were left were already beguiled in some sense. They already were standing on something that wasn't surely sound. They could have had a portion of the truth and the fullness came to them later. But he took his bride then, as promised. And what remained on the earth created for us orthodoxy, then Protestantism, then Restorationism. None of them have worked. None of them show that they have had good apostolic leadership or non-leadership. They have all given us fails. But when God writes upon the heart of an individual, you cannot fail. That's unshakable. That can't be moved. And that's what God says in Jeremiah, his New Testament is. The claim for authority is anachronistic. The, the, the idea that you are a church without authority is a lie. Next week, we're going to talk about the religious ideas that come from the three sources, Orthodoxy, Protestantism, and Restorationism, about sin. 
We're going to talk about sin and what it means. We're going to talk about how they address sin and what they say you need to do with sin and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to respond to sin, etc., etc. And we're going to see from a, from a scriptural perspective this time, not just history, a scriptural perspective, how every one of those three fail when it comes to that word sin. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.